This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Rico Bronia time. How's everybody doing? Evan Roberts, Pete Hoffman. We as Met fans are here to give you the Met talk that you need. It's actually a little different today because coming up over the weekend, Uh, We are going to find out who makes it to the Hall of Fame from the contemporary era ballot. So coming up in a little bit, one of the focuses on the podcast today, we'll be taking a look at all the guys on the ballot and their New York Mets connections, how they did against the Mets and how close they came to becoming New York Mets. Some of these stories, which are true, which have been uh, validated, if you will, are going to blow your mind. I'll leave it at that. We'll get to that coming up in a little bit. Uh, couple of things from the last few days. Number one, the report that the Mets are going to make some changes to the coaching staff. John Heyman had that report that Eric Chavez is going to be promoted to bench coach. Glenn Sherlock is basically going to become the the catching instructor. Uh, Really, the headline of that is how much they love Eric Chavez and how much the players love Eric Chavez. We heard about that last year with him becoming the hitting coach, how successful the Mets offense mostly was especially for the early part of the season, the improvements we saw from certain individuals, the bounce back seasons we saw from certain individuals. And even just listening to Eric Chavez speak, uh, I think he was a hitting coach that had the right message. You know, the message being basically, we're not going to make these guys overthink it. We're not going to give them too much information. They're going to have information, but I also know what it feels like because I'm a hitter and I had a major league career and I was pretty good. But what, I think we are learning about Eric Chavez is that he's not long for our world. And what I mean by that is he is viewed so positively by everybody. He's going to be a manager very, very soon and give the Mets credit for this. Eric Chavez was initially hired as an assistant hitting coach for the New York Yankees. That was his job. Uh, Brian Cashman, to his credit, has an eye for certain guys who he thinks can become really good coaches and or managers. He also loved Carlos Beltran, which sort of led to the Mets hiring him a couple of years ago. But they hired Chavez. He was going to be the assistant hitting coach. And then the Mets were like, hey, we want him to be the hitting coach. And they poached him from the New York Yankees. And look, there's nothing the Yankees could do. They were offering him a better job. They gave him a better job. He's done very well. And like in theory, I could sit here and tell you he is the manager in waiting for when Buck Showalter retires. But the truth is, and I thought about this because I had mentioned this before about Buck, I think on the last podcast, hey, wouldn't it be great to have the future manager on the bench? I was thinking about it. Buck's going to manage until they get rid of him. Like, he could be the manager for the next 10 years. I don't get the impression that age is going to hold him back. 
And we've seen other managers manage deep into their 70s, if you will. So I don't think the Mets really need to really think about who the next manager is for Buck unless things go badly. (laughs) And if things go badly, you're probably not promoting the bench coach to manager. At least none of us fans would want that. So here's the reality with Eric Chavez. Enjoy him. Hopefully he is making that great impact and he continues to make that great impact. But down the road, he's going to manage a team. Probably the New York Yankees once they fire Aaron Boone. So I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I'm not, though. I'm sort of kidding, but am I? Because Cashman loves him some Eric Chavez. So good for him. He got promoted. Uh, That's really what I make out of it. Do you take anything else out of the uh, coaching decisions off? Well, well, I thought that you were going to say the reason why Eric Chavez isn't going to last long is because he's going to hurt while being the bench coach (laughs) of the Mets, which means he's going to be out for the season. So I wasn't really sure. Dude, I love Eric Chavez. Honestly, the guy has been a blessing, and I, I, I appreciate the way the Mets did steal him from the Yankees, but you're right. I, I As he continues to get elevated, time is not long for this man here. Yeah, I mean, he's going to get a job, and good for him. Uh, the other thing that happened over the last few days, Jose Abreu, who had a really good career with the Chicago White Sox, nine years there, signed a free agent contract with the Houston Astros. He's basically making $20 million a year. It's a three-year, $60 million deal. I will start off. Because Hoff may disagree with me. I'm not sure. We haven't discussed this off air because I wanted to have this naturally on the Rico. I like Abreu. I wanted the Mets to sign Jose Abreu in 2013, leading into 14. I thought he should have been the first baseman over Ike Davis and Lucas Duda. So I have a long history of liking Jose Abreu. Um, I am glad the Mets didn't sign him, though. I have to admit that. Um, Number one, his power took a major, major hit this year. He wasn't a bad offensive player. He still hit for a good average. He still had a high OPS. In fact, his average was way up from the previous season. But he went from 30 home runs to 15 home runs. But that's not even my reasoning for this. It's not about, oh, my God, I don't know how good he is. It's more three years, $60 million for a 36-year-old who's coming off a season in which his power diminished. Like, You get Jose Abreu on a one-year deal, cool. I got no problem with that. Bring him in. Bring him in. But a three-year deal in which you're investing $20 million a year, I know that we could just have the argument of, ah, Steve Cohen's got unlimited funds. Who cares? Sure, we can have that. But if we're trying to be fair about the contract he got and what I'd expect out of him over the next three years, I don't love the signing. Now, that's the Astros problem, so I'm not going to go crazy about it. But I don't think I would have been excited about handing a three-year, $60 million deal to a 36-year-old whose power got cut in half. Yeah, I'd hate to disagree with you on this, but I really can't. When I got killed on the uh, with BT and, and, and Tiki when this, when this happened, and I'm like, why would, the, why would the Mets be in on him? Like, I don't mind Jose Abreu, the idea of him, but he's getting older. Again, like you said, the power wasn't there last year. And I think there's other key needs. And not to mention, you're going to bring in a first baseman to what? Compete with Pete Alonso, who plays first base? You then just handcuff the guy at DH? I can't do that. Then you got that, that screws up Francisco Alvarez because I think that a majority of Francisco Alvarez's playing time is going to be out of the DH role, not as a catcher. So Abreu, while I don't even think for a year is worth it, I just think that it, it's not what the Mets need. And I like that they avoided it. Well, look, you hit on something. And it's not 
competing with Alonzo. Alonzo's the first baseman period stop. It's you're locking up the DH spot and you're not locking it up against lefties. You're locking it up against everybody because you're not paying a guy $20 million a year to be a part-time DH. He's the DH. And so you're right. You've eliminated Francisco Alvarez from doing it part-time. You've eliminated from other options at DH, which we could explore on this podcast and future podcasts, because I think there are a lot of internal options that are appealing. And you've eliminated all that because once you give $20 million a year to a guy who's a first baseman, he's the DH. Like, that's it. And I just think there are other options. So that, along with the money, along with locking it up, I don't love it. So I'm not upset that the Mets didn't sign him. I didn't think it was crazy the Mets didn't sign him. And I I will give you a few other options that I think will cost less. And I'm not even saying I would do any of this. I just want to give you other names of guys that are out there right now for this team to sign. J.D. Martinez is still a free agent. Justin Turner intrigues me as a DH option. Here's why. Justin Turner's 38 years old. I think when we hear Justin Turner, we think, oh, you're signing him to play third base. I'm not signing him to play third base. The Mets have options at third base. They have Brett Beatty. They have Eduardo Escobar. But Turner could be a DH option and a third base option. Like, that's the beauty of a guy like him compared to Abreu, where you clearly have a first baseman that you're planning on playing 155 games a year. Problem with Turner is he doesn't offer, like, these splits against lefties that make him the right-handed complement to Daniel Vogelbach, if you're even playing Daniel Vogelbach anymore. But it's at least a name that I think would be cheaper than Abreu, would not be as many years as Abreu, and gives you a different kind of position versatility than Jose Abreu, where he can literally just play first base. Uh, Will Myers, Adam Duvall, Mitch Hanniger, Luke Voigt. But I'll give you an interesting one. And I don't know how much he's going to cost, and I'm not sure he's ready to leave. But if Abreu's going to Houston and they're okay walking away from Julie Gurriel, Julie Gurriel is very, very appealing because, A, he's not costing three or $60 million. B, he freaking tore it up during the postseason. So despite his offensive numbers being way down this year, how good was he in October? And he's still a very good defensive first baseman. So you're not bringing in a guy like Abreu who has to play first base. You're bringing in a guy who can play first base and is good defensively, but also has experience playing other infield positions. He is 38 years old, so he's a little bit on the older side. But on a one-year deal, that's the kind of signing I'd be more into if I'm adding another bat that I'm kind of figuring we'll get a lot of ABs at DH. And something that I love about Yuli Gurriel, which no one talks about, his hair is amazing i don't know <laughs> yeah. what he does but whenever that helmet comes off it is like sh- all over the place but like perfectly screwed up and it's beautiful so imagine would... the endorsements off oh my god head and shoulders whatever it is i mean you you name axe spray who knows he'll get them and i would love to see that crazy hair and nice bl- uh, orange and blue jersey i'm i'm all about that because again I'm okay with if you're going to bring in a DH, if it's solely a guy who's going to play DH, a one-year DH, I'm okay with. I don't don't need to handcuff anybody for a significant amount of time right now. I just don't. Yeah, and I'll tell you where I'm leaning besides even those names I brought up. I'm leaning towards internal. I really am. I'm leaning towards this is not only an opportunity for Alvarez to DH a lot along with catching. because, And I've said this before. I envision... Tomas Nito catching 
against left-handed pitchers and Alvarez DHing against left-handed pitchers and then Alvarez catching a lot against right-handed pitchers. And then you've got your left-handed DH, whether it's Daniel Vogelback, whether it's even a Brett Beatty, because Brett Beatty in theory is a third baseman, but if Eduardo Escobar is having a really good year and you want Luis Guillerme's defense out there, there are a lot of scenarios where Beatty ends up DHing a lot. So I'm good with giving Beatty, Vientos, Alvarez, a little bit of Vogelback, really a combination of those four guys, plus off days. You know, you're giving Jeff McNeil a half an off day, Francisco Lindor a half an off day, all that. I'm okay with those being my guys. And here's the backup plan, because I really believe a lot of the Mets lineup success is going to be based on Beatty and Alvarez, and even Vientos to a degree, but specifically Beatty and Alvarez. How good are those guys? If they're that good, the Met lineup is different, dynamic potentially. If they're not good, then I think you look at the trade deadline. I know the trade deadline was not a success in 2022, but that doesn't mean every trade deadline is going to suck. I think then you look at the trade deadline and say, okay, this didn't work. The internal options didn't work. Okay, who's out there? Oh, Hunter Hunter Renfro's out there. Why? Because the Angels are a disaster and they suck and they're out of it. Oh, look, Ian Happ is out there. Why? Because the Cubs are going nowhere. Oh, look, CJ Crone is out there this time for real because the Rockies aren't going anywhere. Like, there are going to be options. Now, those are me projecting. I can't guarantee CJ Crone, Ian Happ, Hunter Renfro are available at the trade deadline, but I'm good. This may piss a lot of Met fans off. I apologize. I'm good with those internal options filling in the DH spot. And then if it doesn't work, if we're wrong about these prospects, then you use the trade deadline to fill the hole. So I hate it a lot. Like, (laughs) I'm I'm like not for that because like, listen, not saying that I want to secure up and lock up the DH, but it makes me feel like, again, I'm I'm huge on a trade turner. I don't expect Aaron Judge to come here, but I would love to secure a power bat somehow in this lineup somewhere. Don't want to eat up the DH, but but something of substance. That scenario makes me feel like we have internal moves, so we're not going to do that. So I feel like the offseason is not going to be as big as I'd like it to be. However, the one thing I will take with this, and I, you and I were screaming for it all season long, and it took till September to call Francisco Alvarez. You at least give them all this time in advance. You get you give you're giving them Beatty Alvarez months rather than days, and that to me is huge. If you add and Trey Turner doesn't fit it, I think the Trey Turner discussion is different. I think it's more around Nimmo and if he's back or not. But if you add someone to be your DH, a full time DH, where are the at bats coming from for Brett Beatty? I'll start with him because. Eduardo Escobar is still on this team and was one of their better offensive players in September. You know, where is Beatty playing? Like, I think a lot of Beatty's at-bats could actually be at DH. So Beatty and Alvarez and to a degree Vientos need an opportunity to play this year. You're right about last year, but last year's over. There's nothing we could do about it. And if you're adding kind of average bats to this lineup, you're clogging them from getting an opportunity. And July is that period of time to say, oh, okay, this didn't work as well as I thought. Now let's go make a move for a bat we need. So that's the only reason why, look, obviously, you go get a superstar, sign me up. I'm not against that. You want to go get a Trey Turner? 
and move however you want to position it. I've mentioned him playing center field, but let's say he's the third baseman or he's the second baseman. If McNeil moves to third, great. Those guys are great players. But the average player, the average DH, that's what's not appealing because I'd rather see the upside of Beatty and to a degree Alvarez and Vientos. And basically that's what's on free agency right now is average DH guys. Yes, no question. The other thing that happened is Bryce Harper is you know, officially had the Tommy John surgery. I'm hearing he's not coming back to the all-star break. Here's the way this lays out for the Mets this year. And it's weird because I was looking at the schedule the other day, trying to remind myself how weird 2023 is. We no longer play these division rivals 19 times. That's gone. That's gone by the wayside. So as a reminder, the Mets will play each of their division rivals 13 times this season. It went from 19 to 13 and much like in the past where it was 10 at home, nine on the road or nine at home, 10 on the road. It's the same thing, except it's seven and six. So the Phillies and the Mets play 13 times, six at City Field, seven in Philadelphia. Uh, the two teams they have the home field advantage on, if you will, it's really one game, is Atlanta and Washington. Philly and Miami's the six and seven. But the Mets and the Phillies will play six of their 17 times before the All-Star break. So based on that, they'll miss a little bit of Bryce Harper, but the Mets actually close the season with seven of 10 games against the Philadelphia Phillies in September. So they'll miss a little bit of Bryce, but maybe not as much as you thought. And they don't play the Phillies until the last weekend in May. So again, you're playing them less, but no Phillies in April and no Phillies until the latter part of May as you're looking at Memorial Day weekend. So for whatever that's worth, that's the info on Bryce who's going to miss a significant amount of time. And that sucks because, of course, he'll come back and he'll be MVP-like material for the last half of the season. But question to you, and this is serious, because the debate about Aaron Judge and Jacob DeGrom. Now, I understand pitcher versus uh, an offensive player. There's different value and stuff like that. But this is – Reality. Mike Trout signed one of the biggest contracts in, in baseball, right? Bryce Harper's up there too, uh, as far as how much money he's going to earn over his contract. Like you're talking about Jacob Degrom, and you're talking about Aaron Judge, and we're talking about injury history. These guys signed their contracts and are still getting hurt. And, and now I understand it's not a, it's it's not something that's nagging. It's not well. Trout's back issue is going to be nagging his rest of his career, but Bryce Harper's just a tough nosed player. He he happened to break his thumb. He happened to do this. He happened to do that. Like, that's happening. But how do you incorporate that with financial um, with financial restraints when you're talking about the best players in the league? It's part of the game, man. I mean, it just is what it is. And what really saved Bryce and saved the Phillies, and who knows, maybe down the road it saves the Mets, is the fact that they have the DH. Because if they didn't have the DH, Bryce Harper misses a significant part of last year. Maybe he doesn't play at all. Maybe he needs this surgery prior to this offseason. And clearly the Phillies don't win anything. I know they played well without him, but it's a major hindrance to their abilities to go as far as they did. And it's the same thing coming up this year. I mean, what I'm reading about Bryce Harper is that they may have him back by the All-Star break, and then he's going to have to DH. (laughs) And they hope he'll play the field by next year, late in the year, which means Bryce Harper will go over a year plus not playing the field. So I know I've been anti-DH in the past, and my opinions about the rule remain the same. It's over now. It doesn't matter. 
But there's no doubting that that rule saves a guy like Bryce Harper. And like I said, I can't rule out what's going to happen to the Mets down the road. You never know who's going to suffer an injury but still be able to play because there's a DH. But whenever you sign a guy, whether it's Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, Jacob DeGrom, doesn't matter, there's a risk of injury. And you know that. That's just part of the game. But in the Phillies' case, how much have they lost from him? Because they still got to a World Series. He still hit a majestic postseason home run. They still were able to play him. And under this format that we now live in, where six teams make the playoffs, they can survive a few months without Bryce Harper as long as when he comes back in July, August, and September, he's Bryce Harper. And they can still find a way to make the playoffs, win 87 games, and then miraculously go to the World Series. I mean, look at the Grum. DeGrom and Scherzer were gone for a lot, a lot of yes. time, too. And, and, we, and we've actually, in years past, when DeGrom had his most dominant seasons, where they couldn't win a freaking game for him, the best season they've had over the past five years, he wasn't even really there for. I know. And in theory, him coming back strong in August could have worked. And it did. It didn't. You know, we know how the hell it worked. It did work. It didn't work. It doesn't matter. We now live in a world in which baseball is closer. It isn't there yet, but it's closer to the NBA, where it's just be healthy at the right time. Make the postseason, get into the tournament, doesn't matter the seed, and just get healthy at the right time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, coming up on Sunday night, I'm very excited. This is the most excited I've ever been for a ballot that's not your traditional Hall of Fame ballot. We have the contemporary era ballot in which a handful of guys will be up for the Hall of Fame. They will be voted on by some of their peers. There are a few Hall of Famers on the on the group that is voting. There are some media members that are voting. There are some executives that are voting. And the way it works is you need to get 12 of 16 votes. There are 16 panelists voting. If you get 12 of 16, you get into the Baseball Hall of Fame. If you don't get the 12, you fall short. So quickly, at the end of this, Hoff and I will tell you, point blank, yes, I'd vote for this guy. No, I wouldn't vote for that guy. But that's not the point of the pod today. The point of the pod today is how some of these guys almost became New York Mets and how our lives and their lives could have been very, very different. Now, some of these guys never came close to come becoming New York Mets, but they're still fascinating nevertheless. The first one is Albert Bell. Albert Bell never came close to being a New York Met, spent his entire career with the American League, uh, so never even faced the Mets, essentially. Like, we basically never looked at Albert Bell. Now, from afar, I knew how great Albert Bell was, and to me, Albert Bell is a Hall of Famer. 
Uh, there are very few guys in the history of baseball that have higher OPSs than Albert Bell that are not in the Hall of Fame. One guy's name is Barry Bonds. More on him in a little bit. But Albert Bell, for a kind of an eight-year period, was this elite-level hit machine. And it sort of gives you that test of how many years do you have to be great for you to be considered a Hall of Famer. But then we have Barry Bonds. And forgetting all the steroid stuff with Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, and I'll never, ever forget this. At the end of the 1996 season, a year in which the Mets went 71 and 91, they had a great year from Bernard Gilkey, a great year from Lance Johnson, a great year from Todd Hundley. Barry Bonds was a member of the Giants, and they were just rumors. I don't even know where they came from. The Giants are going to trade. They're done. They're done with Bonds. Bonds is a great player at the time. He's not steroided up Bonds, but he's still a former MVP, was coming off a year, I think, in which he had close to 40 home runs, drove in 100 runs, an elite-level baseball player, one of the top players in the sport. And Barry Bonds, for whatever reason, there were rumors that they were going to trade him. And so Barry Bonds comes to the plate at Shea Stadium. And I'll pull the exact date because I know it was late in the season. And Barry Bonds gets announced to the crowd and gets this huge ovation because we wanted him. Because we all read the rumors. We know what was going on. And we were like, we want him. We want Barry Bonds. How can we not? And here's the date. It was late August of that season. It was late August of that year. So it wasn't like September, but it was clearly when you knew the deal. And I'll never forget me and my dad giving the guy a standing ovation. Like it was one of the rare times we cheered for an opponent because we're actively saying, we got to trade for Barry Bonds. So I went into the archives to find how close did this come to happening? Like, are there names? Is there a specific rumor? Here's the closest thing I found. And you guys can't dispute this. This is a quote from, of all people, Bernard Gilkey. So again, Gilkey has this great season. Fantastic, fantastic 1996. And the Mets re him. They re him. Not the greatest contract in the world. I'm sure we'll get to that in a future podcast. Anyhow, Bernard Gilkey is asked in his contract signing, do you think the Mets are going to get Barry Bonds? And I have a quote from Bernard Gilkey. Here it is. As much as people say things about Barry and what type of guy he is, I want him on our team, Gilkey said. If we don't get him and can't do anything, if we get, I'm sorry, if we can get him, he can't do anything but help our ball club. We need a couple of more pieces to this puzzle. I feel like I'm a piece of this puzzle. Hopefully, they'll try to get somebody else. All right? Now, this article from the New York Post many years ago, or Newsday, I should say, goes on to say, the Mets remain interested in acquiring Barry Bonds. After initially hearing that the Giants wanted to trade the outfielder by the end of the week, the Mets have been told the Giants now want to take their time in evaluating offers. They're slowing the process down, one source with knowledge of the situation said. One unnamed GM. Oh, this is, this is going to kill you, Hoff. This is Will Ponesk. Here we go. One general manager attending the World Series said he would be shocked if the Mets acquired Bonds. Why? You want to know why he'd be shocked? Because of the $16.5 million he is scheduled to make over the next two seasons. 
the Mets signed their closer, John Franco, to a two-year contract worth $5.35 million last Friday and are looking to upgrade their bullpen and add a proven power bat to their lineup. But basically, this unnamed GM, what a genius he is, said, the Mets aren't taking on Bonds' contract. So I don't know if it was the contract off. I assume it was the fact the Giants decided just not to trade him, which they didn't do. But the Mets were linked to Barry Bonds after the 96 season, and they didn't get him. And boy, that would have changed everything. Holy crap. I love that it was in the contract with Gilkey. Because that, to me, something like, I'm always curious. I was actually thinking about that, like David Wright, for example. We, 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 you know, Kadire was always linked to him as like far as who do you want to bring in? He brings in Kadire type of thing. But you want to help build a roster. There's names around. Like, do you actually, hey, if you're going to sign, who do you want on this team? That's amazing that he, they said uh, they were talking about Barry Bonds and potentially bringing him in. Yeah. And Gilkey's like, bring him on in, even though he plays my position. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I'll probably be traded for him, but whatever. Yeah, I'm going to move <laughs> somewhere else, but sure, bring him in. Um, so thinking about this, because I remember it at the time. I just don't remember specifics in terms of what they were going to offer necessarily for Barry. If the Mets had acquired Barry Bonds after the 97 season, I'm going to take you through the alternate universe we would have lived in. After the 96 season, I should have said. Mike Piazza never becomes a Met. And let's just start right there. It does not happen. Because the Mets were desperate for a star when they traded for Mike. You know, in theory, Todd Hundley was coming back. He was one of the better offensive catchers in baseball. And look, they happened to acquire a catcher because they were desperate for a star, for a guy to kind of change the feel of the New York Mets. Barry Bonds does that. Like, Barry Bonds would have accomplished that. Now, I don't know how Bonds would have handled the media, which is a major question. He could have come in here and it could have been bad. He was very close with Bobby Bonilla. I think they're friends to this day. And Bonilla may have said, hey, Barry, I got some advice when you get to New York. Uh, Put some earplugs in your ear in case they boo you and tell the reporters I'll show you the Bronx. Like, I don't know. The Bonds thing could have gone terribly in terms of the media, but he was a great player. And so if Bonds is in that lineup in 1997, I'm not saying they they win the wild card that year because the Marlins were very good, but the Mets are better. They're just a flat out better team. And in 1998, they don't trade for Mike Piazza. Now that creates this alternate universe where Preston Wilson is still there and who knows what happens to him. And Todd Hunley sticks around. And that means they don't trade for Armando Benitez and Roger Cedeno. Like there's a lot of weird things that could happen from this, but I can guarantee you this Met fans for anyone who hates the steroid guys. I'll tell you this right now. If Barry Bonds was hitting 73 home runs for our team and was leading us to a World Series, we'd be still praying to his altar. To this day, we'd be going to the statue at City Field every day saying, dear Barry, dear Barry, we love you, Barry. <laughs> well, you know, that and I don't know if we would have cheered McGuire and Sosa as much when they came to town when they were breaking records those years. Yeah, I, I don't know. Because we, we had our own slugger? Because we had, we our, had our own guy? guy yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know because Bonds didn't chase those records till after 98. That's apparently what motivated him to do steroids. So I don't know. But think about this. Barry Bonds chasing a home run record. (laughs) The other time I remember there being Bonds rumors was actually after the Giants didn't re-sign him in 2007. And for a short period of time, 
we were desperate for a bat. And I remember talking about it on the fan with Joe. Could we bring Bonds in? And it never felt realistic. I think he was clearly blackballed. I don't think teams wanted to touch him at that point. But acquiring Bonds after 96 would have been completely different. Another guy who's up for voting is Roger Clemens. And I think people forget this about Roger. And we'll get into his history versus the Mets. Roger Clemens was drafted by the New York Mets. True story. Back in 1981, at a high school, Roger Clemens was taken in the 12th round. He did not sign. The Mets and Clemens could not come to an agreement. So in 1983, two years later, Roger went back in the draft. And the Mets planned on drafting Roger Clemens again. And one pick before the New York Mets were the Boston Red Sox. They took Roger Clemens. The rest is history. And Clemens's history versus the Mets is crazy because it spans two generations. You go right back to 1986, which is something we only hear stories about. Roger Clemens starts game two of the World Series that year. Uh, doesn't pitch all that well. Red Sox win that game, but he didn't pitch all that well. Got knocked out in the fifth inning. But then famously, I think we still see this image to this day of Roger with his hand, head in his hands, praying to the gods after he delivered a brilliant game six performance, seven innings, two runs. He's about to end the curse. He's going to be the man that contributed to ending the curse. We all know what happened in game six. So Roger, two starts, Shea Stadium, the effing 1986 World Series. We did not, we were not trying to sign him as a free agent, by the way, before he went to Toronto. We were not trying to trade for him after Toronto eventually traded him to the New York Yankees. And obviously the Yankee stuff is where the history became, it really got up a notch. And what's funny is that we kicked Roger Clemens' ass. Let's not forget that. The New York Mets in the Subway Series, and even before that when he was a Blue Jay, beat the crap out of Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens' numbers against the New York Mets are not good. In fact, overall in his career, Roger Clemens' ERA against the Mets is 4.89 and 11 starts. There is not a team in baseball he has a higher ERA against. Not a team. Three and six, 4.89 ERA between 1997 and 2002. And those are good years, by the way, for Roger. How many Cy Youngs are mixed in there with the Blue Jays and the Yankees? He made seven starts against the Mets in interleague play. He was two and five with a 7.56 ERA. A lot of this is what led to him beating Piazza. Piazza beat him. Piazza... Beat the crap out of him. I'll remember. I'll tell you games. Uh, the finale of the Subway Series in 99 at Yankee Stadium when the coaches got fired. Home run off Roger Clemens. The Friday night back at Shea Stadium uh, about a month later. Home run off Roger Clemens. Like he, he beat up Roger Clemens. Really did. And that obviously led to, you know, I'm not, we're not going to waste time on this. But you know what happened, obviously. Beamed in the head, the bat incident, all that crap. So, Rodgers got a long history against the Mets. It's not good outside of Game 2 of the World Series. I shouldn't leave that out. I'm giving all these brutal Roger Clemens versus the Mets stats, and the one thing I can't leave out is eight scoreless innings in Game 2 of the Subway World Series, the game in which he threw the bat at Mike. I'd like to leave it out, 
but I can't. Four career starts at Chase Stadium by Roger Clemens, two in the 86 World Series, two in interleague play. His record, 0-3, 547 ERA. So look, the, the numbers are the numbers. The Mets in their history, outside of that one game that's tough to look past, game two of the 2000 World Series, the Mets beat the crap out of Roger Clemens. So is he a Hall of Famer? That's not the point of this right now. We'll get to that eventually. <laughs> but how about the fact they drafted him? Did you even know that off that they drafted him all those years ago? No, I didn't. But I, I've heard stories about this that they've, you know, high school guys don't always sign. They always go back into the fold. Then it happens. Yeah, it, it is what it is. It's not just a no, Mets thing either. No, it's not. It's more. I just think it's interesting because of the history he has with the Mets that, Wow, he could have been a Met. Boy, that would have changed everything. Doc and Roger in the same rotation. Uh, Don Mattingly is also a finalist for the Hall of Fame. We got nothing against Donnie. The only thing we have against Donnie is that he's managed against the Mets with the Marlins and the Dodgers. But obviously, in the time before interleague play, the whole Mattingly-Keith Hernandez debate was just a debate. We never got to see it mano a mano. Uh, Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff, you know, he was with the Braves for a bunch of years. But remember... He was with the Braves before our rivalry really got heated, before 98, before 99, before 2000. So I don't even have like this negative feeling towards Fred McGriff. His numbers against the Mets, very pedestrian, which I thought was sort of surprising because you end up looking at these numbers that guys have against every team, and they're all good. The guy's a Hall of Famer. He's good against every team. Fred McGriff had his fourth lowest OPS versus any team was actually the New York Mets. So it is what it is. The other guy who's a finalist is Dale Murphy, who actually had great numbers at Chase Stadium. I was looking at Dale Murphy's numbers. Dale Murphy, best ballpark he could hit in was Fulton County Stadium. Not a surprise, his home ballpark. The second best ballpark he hit in was Shea Stadium. And what's impressive about that is think about when Dale Murphy was at his best. The Mets were very good. Like, the Mets had elite-level pitching, so you're putting up big numbers at Chase Stadium. You're doing it against great players. All right, two other guys that are finalists, and, boy, this is going to blow both of your minds. Both of your minds is in your mind and my mind. It still blows my mind thinking about it. Let's get to Kurt Schilling. So, Kurt Schilling has amazing numbers against the Mets. Not a surprise. Spent a lot of time in the National League East with the Philadelphia Phillies. Obviously traded to Arizona. So, his numbers against the Mets, 13-5, and 2-4-2 ERA, utterly brilliant. If you remember, Kurt Schilling was traded at the deadline to the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2000. The big impact, though, was the following year when they made the playoffs and they had the rotation of Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson. The New York Mets tried to trade for Kurt Schilling. They made an attempt. And I did find an old quote from Steve Phillips in which he said, we gave them an offer. We felt good about it. They wouldn't return our phone calls. So I think what happened, and you can't even get mad at this, is that they're the Nationals. They're the modern day. The Phillies were just never trading Kurt Schilling inside the division. It just wasn't happening. Even though the team wasn't any good, the Mets were a playoff team. The Braves were a playoff team. They did not want to trade Kurt Schilling to the New York Mets. Now, it's frustrating because, Hoff, if the Mets trade 2000, keep this in mind. If the Mets trade for Schilling, they got a rotation going into the postseason of Al Leiter, Mike Hampton, and Kurt Schilling. Let's go. 
<laughs> and then obviously in the World Series, Kurt Schilling has a chance to bloody sock the Yankees and diamond back the Yankees, things he eventually did long before that, except with the Mets. So I, I don't know who was being offered. I'm sure it was a fair, uh, not a fair offer. I'm sure it was a fine offer, but clearly based on Steve Phillips saying that, that's the Philly saying, we're just not trading you. Sorry. Uh, what bothers me is that you should know that it's, you, you, it's like, listen, and I hate to do the fancy baseball comparison, but you and I are in the same league together. You know when you have to offer a little bit more to get a guy or at least keep someone interested. If you're going to make a legitimate offer for Kirk Schilling, which they should have, it was necessary, they got to go for it. They got to go for everything. Do do whatever it takes to get them. Um, I'm, that would have been incredible. I did not know about that trade offer. I wish I could see on paper who the names were because I'm dying to know that. We should get Steve Phillips on. Well, yes. So I don't know the names, but I'm about to give you the big one. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So the last candidate for the Hall of Fame is Rafael Palmero. I found a Baltimore Sun article from May of 1998 with a specific earth-shattering blockbuster trade that was on the table between the New York Mets and the Baltimore Orioles. And there were names involved. And we could all decide, A, would the Mets have been better off? Spoiler alert, yes. And B, why didn't they make this trade? So here's what happened. First of all, as far as Palmero is concerned, he always had horrible career numbers against the Mets. But I looked into it closer. A little misleading. Remember, early in his career, in the National League with the Cubs. It wasn't the Hall of Fame Rafael Palmero that he would become later in his career with Baltimore and Texas. So his overall numbers, 252, six career home runs, third lowest OPS versus any team, a 211 batting average, Chase Stadium. Throw it all out. It happened early in his career. In May of 1998, the Baltimore Orioles were deciding, you know what? This isn't working. It's, it's just, it's not working. We tried. We got to the LCS in 97. We got to the LCS in 96. It just ain't working in 1998. So they had two guys who were free agents to be, just to keep that in mind. Those two guys were Rafael Palmero and Roberto Alomar. Now, Med fans, 1998, Roberto Alomar. Not 2002. I didn't say 2002. 1998, Roberto Alomar. And apparently, <laughs> Palmero and Alomar, according to the Baltimore Sun, why would they lie? This is from 1998, was offered to the New York Mets for three players. Okay? And the Mets said no. 
The Mets said, thanks, we're good, we'll pass. The three players were. And you tell me off, maybe you don't want to make this trade. Player number one, Carlos Baerga. You okay with that? Of, of course. Get him out of here. Oh, my God. Player number two, Subway Series hero, Dave Malicki. Uh, yeah, that's a, I'm okay with that one. I think it's going to get tricky now because I'm going to give you the third player. The third player is a good player. The third player was John Olerud. All right? So that was the mm. offer on the table. Dave Malicki, Carlos Baerga, who sucked, and John Olerud for Rafael Palmero and Roberto Alomar in 1998. And the Mets said no. Your thoughts? Who? I mean, I'm not saying that Maliki was like the be-all, end-all to that, that that rotation. You could find a way to replace him. Palmero and Alomar were needed. Oh, my God. So- yes! <laughs> yes. So Rafael Palmero that season, okay, hit 43 home runs and drove in 121 runs with a 945 OPS. Alamor, on the other hand, and remember at this point, this was Robbie's last year in Baltimore. He actually had one of the worst seasons of his career during that season of 1998. Uh, that season in 1998, he had 282 one of the lowest batting averages of his career, uh, hit 14 home runs and had a 765 OPS. It was the first time since 1990 when he was with the Padres that Alomar had an OPS that low. So it was not a great year for Robbie. At the end of the season, Robbie signed with Cleveland and probably had the best season of his career and then went on and had one of the great runs of his career in 99 2000 and 2001 three really good years in Cleveland we all know what happened with the Mets his first year with the Mets he fell off completely but he was about to have three more really good years so a couple of things that were being fair about this offer both guys were free agents okay so the Mets trading for Alomar and Palmero in 1998 doesn't mean they keep them and let's not forget this Mike Piazza who the Mets had just acquired just acquired him was also a free agent so if the Mets had made that trade, you're looking at Piazza, Alomar, and Palmero all being free agents. Are the Mets re-signing all three guys? Probably not, if we're being fair about this. But in the short term, yeah, in 1998, did the Mets probably make the playoffs as opposed to choking out and missing the wild card by one game? Yeah, no, no doubt about it. They couldn't hit the last five days of the year. Having Robbie Alomar, having Rafael Palmero, does that help? Yeah. I, so I think the biggest difference is that they make the playoffs in 1998. Do they win the pennant? Probably not. Are they beating the Padres or the Astros or the Braves? Probably not. But they make the playoffs. The then question becomes, who are they keeping? Because I can't assume, Hoff, that all three guys are being re-signed since they were all free agents. Fair point? Yeah, but, you know, you look at the Marlins. They won the year prior in 97, and they, you know, they got rid of everybody. Right after. So maybe you go that approach and you get a World Series under your belt. Yeah, but I, I you know what? Here's the thing. I don't think <laughs> as good as those guys were, that was going to make them a World Series team. They were still a flawed team. They still, to me, didn't have the pitching necessarily to win it. So I, 
It's a trade that when you hear, no doubt, I think all our reactions are the same if you're hearing this for the first time, which is, of course they should have made that trade. Yeah, because Carlos Baiego sucked too. That was, he was atrocious. No doubt. No doubt. And the Met lineup, by the time they were closing out that that season in Atlanta, was pathetic. It was not a good lineup. And as much as we all love John Olerud, Rafael Palmero was better. Like, he just was. And if you're, if they kept everybody, like if the Mets said, hey, we traded for all, we're keeping everybody, Piazza, Palmero, Alomar, they're all coming back, then I think there's a better chance the Mets win it in 1999, that they beat the Braves, or maybe win it all in 2000, that they they have a better team because they would have had a better team. Now, it means they don't get Robin Ventura. It means John Olerud isn't there. Like there's other things that probably occur because of it. Like you're probably looking at an infield of Alfonso at third, Ordonez at short, Alomar at second, Palmero at first, as opposed to Olerud at first base and Ventura at third base. But yeah, considering how great both guys were and what they did in their next stop, Alomar in Cleveland, Palmero in Texas, it was a mistake not making that trade. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, yeah, it was. And but you know what? Again, no guarantees in life. No matter what they would have done, there's no guarantees. Again, like you said, they, who knows what they're going to sign? Would they have got kept Piazza? They could have gone a whole different direction. And I, and I think with Palmero in 2005, like at the very end of his career, when he was still a relatively productive player and had been outed as a guy who lied to Congress, the Mets also were rumored to being connected to him in 05 and 06 when they were looking for a first baseman. They had Doug Mankiewicz for one year. They eventually had Carlos Delgado. I'm glad they didn't make the move for him. I mean, I don't think he had that much left. He wasn't the same guy. And obviously, he was also a tainted guy based on everything that happened with the United States Congress. So, yeah, what yeah. was Paul Murrow's quote again? I did not cheat on my wife. <laughs> it, was, it was close. <laughs> very, very close. All right. So as far as these guys are concerned, and again, it's really interesting seeing who's actually voting for this. I saw a list uh, a couple of days ago of who's going to vote. And here are the 16. I'll give you the names. There's 16 names, a part of this uh, Hall of Fame contemporary baseball era ballot. Here are your voters. Chipper Jones is a voter. Fascinating. How's he not going to vote for Fred McGriff? They were teammates. I mean, he'd be a bad guy if he did. Greg Maddox, another Fred McGriff teammate. What the hell's going on here? Jack Morris shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. Ryan Sandberg, Lee Smith, Frank Thomas, Alan Trammell. Those are the former players, the Hall of Fame players. Then you've got Paul Beeston, who is an executive with the Blue Jays. Theo Epstein. I know we've heard of him. Artie Moreno. What a disgrace. What a bleeping disgrace that Artie Moreno gets a Hall of Fame vote. And disgusting. I mean, the Hall of Fame honestly should be ashamed of themselves. He's the worst owner in the history of baseball. That's a little too far. I take that back. He's he's a top. 10 worst owner in the history. Second worst owner in baseball. That bad, but I'm just not a fan. Sorry. Kim Ng, who is the GM of the Marlins. Dave St. Peter. I looked who this guy was. Dave St. Peter is just like a longtime Twins employee. Like, I'm sure he's had great jobs over there. I don't mean to diminish him, but he's not even in the baseball department. I think he's like in the business department or something. Ken Williams, former executive, executive. And then the media members slash historians are Steve Hurt, Laval Neal, and Susan Slusser. Susan Slusser is interesting because Susan Slusser covered baseball in the Bay Area, would not vote for Bonds, and then recently wrote an article saying, hey, now that Bud Selig's in, I guess I'll hold my nose and vote for the steroid guys. 
So I guess that means she's a vote for Barry Bonds. Real quick, and we'll give a response to this or a reaction to this after it's announced Sunday night on the Sunday into Monday edition of Rico. Is Albert Bell a Hall of Famer, Hoff, yes or no? No doubt, yes. No doubt, yes. I agree with you. Barry Bonds, Hall of Famer. Yes. I agree with you. Roger Clemens, Hall of Famer. Yes. What was that? What do you mean? Yes. Is he? I, don't, I, I hate him more than anybody else, but yes. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing about hating him, but okay. Uh, I agree with you. Don Mattingly, and be careful because Brandon Tierney may hear this. I don't think so because if Keith Hernandez is not a Hall of Famer, then I don't think Don Baseball should be a Hall of Famer. And then it's the same thing with David Wright. Very similar careers. Yeah, you know, I, David I Wright's on a different level, but yeah. I agree with you. I don't think Don Mattingly is a Hall of Famer either, and I'll give you my answer very simply. I just don't think he did it long enough. He had four incredibly dominant all-time – all-time maybe is too strong. I guess I'm just trying to be nice. He had some amazing, amazing seasons in which he was incredible. But I think sometimes to me I need more than that. And if you add it up, I could actually argue it's four dominant seasons and then two good seasons – and the rest of it was crap. And I just don't think that's enough. And by the way, in the dominant seasons that he had, it's not like he had record-breaking 1,100 OPSs. He had high nine OPSs. He won an MVP, almost won two. Like, I'm not diminishing what he did, but to me, four years isn't enough. So, Okay, so, I mean, you compare him to a pitcher in Sandy Koufax. His career got cut short, but they were dominant for his entire career. Koufax was better, though. Like, in oh, yeah. terms oh. of what they did, Sandy dominated more than Mattingly. No question. I'm just trying to think of, like, the the lowest level of Hall of Famer that had a shortened career offensively. Where can Donnie rank next to that? No, I'm going to tell you the guy. I'm going to tell you the comparison of Don Mattingly, and it's it's a Met guy. It's Met-related, and he's not a Hall of Famer, and he wasn't even close. He is an offensive version of Johan Santana. Look at Johan. Johan won a bunch of Cy Youngs. Like, Johan Santana was freaking awesome. And no one even considers him for the Hall of Fame because he didn't do it long enough. And if you're going to be Colfax, and that's a comparison we like to hear, if you're going to be Jim Brown, then you you better be the best of all time for those four years. Not, yes, really good, the MVP, which has been done, but you have to be all time, all time. So to me, I say the answer is no. Fred McGriff, Hall of Famer. No, I agree with you. That's a compile. That's the definition of a compiler. Had a nice, fine career, not a Hall of Famer. Dale Murphy. Uh, did you watch him enough? Would you rather pass on Dale Murphy? I, I don't have enough on him. I don't. All right. My opinion is no, and it's it's based on numbers, and there's a little bit of a bias. Dale Murphy after the age of 31 was nothing. It was nothing. And so I only remember Dale Murphy as like a really crappy player, but I'm not judging him based on that. I, again, it goes back to the Mattingly theory, which is how great do you need to be for how long? And to me, Dale Murphy doesn't have that. I'm also a hard marker. I admit that. I'm a dick. I, I, I'll go with it. That's fine. Uh, Rafael Palmero, Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think it's a yes. I think yeah, I say yes. no. Because, and it's not even just the steroids. Like You can give me the 3,000 hits and the 500 home runs all day. I never felt. He was a great, great, great player. I think he was a guy that put up huge numbers in the steroid era, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I just never felt he was all-time as it was even happening. So, I mean, I'll give you one yeah, example. But, 
But but it's it's yeah. hard, it's hard though to when you're comparing him. I I hate this argument because you, when you're a great player and there's like four special players that just happen to be unfreaking believable, which was basically Sosa, Maguire, Bonds, and maybe there was one other player that you could throw in there too that were on a different level. It's like how are you not able to? I understand you that why. you're not that great. I tell you why, because Rafael Palmero, who was a gold glove first baseman, okay, keep that in mind, finished top five in the MVP voting once. So it's not being blocked by three or four all time players, despite 40 home runs, 140 RBIs one year. He still wasn't getting MVP votes on a top five level. That tells me something. That's that's important to me. And that's why, yeah, you see 569 home runs and you see 3,000 hits and you see these numbers that are very tough to deny. But you know what also I don't see? Bold. And what I mean by that is when you go on baseball reference, bold means you led the league. Rafael Palmero never led the league in home runs, never led the league in RBIs, never led the league in average, never led the league in OPS. The only thing he ever led the league in once was doubles, one time. So, again, I'm a hard marker. That's why I say no to Rafael Palmero. And lastly, Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling, a Hall of Famer? I, I can't. I, I hate him so much. But, yes, I think he probably is. I agree. I think he is, too. I think he's one of the great clutch pitchers in the history of baseball. Um, legendary moments, legendary teams. Uh, great regular season numbers, too. But I think the postseason is what puts him over the top. So that's the ballot that will be announced Sunday night. Uh, and we'll give you a quick reaction to it. We're not going to do a whole podcast about it or anything like that. But we'll give you some quick thoughts on that uh, when it is announced Sunday night. Now, I, I'd actually trade, take the sock, the bloody sock, out of the Hall of Fame and you can put Sterling in. How about that? <laughs> hey, it was almost a Met. Steve Phillips was trying to trade for the guy. <laughs> <laughs> can you believe it? Anyhow, any thoughts, reactions, you can always email the podcast at the Rico B at gmail.com at the Rico B gmail.com coming up in a few days, Joe DeMeo, who to me is one of the best kind of minor league experts around the New York Mets. He has a Met pod himself. We should check out the Mets pod also works for SNY. We'll go deep into the Mets farm system with Joe also coming up next week. We will finally get into the legendary players or favorite players you had and how you felt when they left the New York Mets. Got a lot of tweets about that. We'll read some of them. We'll give you our thoughts and go through the litany of guys that kind of fit that bill. And obviously, any reactions to any moves that finally do happen around Jacob DeGrom and Brandon Nemo and whatnot. Uh, So keep it right here to the Rico. Check out Pete. He's with Tiki and Tini during the week. Me with Craig during the week at 2 o'clock. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 